You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Has this ever happened to you? You get an email from a family member or friend, and when you open it, you find that it's a long chain of forwarded messages that contain an amazing story and ends up by urging you to pass it on to friends. For some people... The act of passing on that story makes them feel like they've helped make the world a better place. It only takes a few seconds and they've shared something they feel is helpful or useful or that they agree with or that amazes them. But how many of them take the time to ask, is this thing I'm sending out actually true? Here's the thing. For the run of this show, I've been interested in asking a lot of questions. One of them is usually along the lines of this. Tales of Monster X are pretty interesting, but is Monster X real? Well, we really can't answer that. Often the best we can do is check and see if the facts surrounding the story make logical sense or if there's reasons it can't be true. It gets complicated. Stories often come down to anecdotes passed on and retold. We lose the sort of crime scene evidence that would be lab-testable. Memories change. Stories evolve. Retellings embellish. In the end, we usually don't have enough information to really, truly prove the existence of a monster. But what about those emails? Did that kid really get a miracle cure? Is there really a natural remedy that'll cure my baldness? Did that mom flip a car to save her baby from a flash flood? Is President so-and-so really involved with Mysterious Group Z? How can we know? Should we care? And why not just trust our gut instincts? The answer to those questions is what this episode's about. Monster Talk has covered a lot of stories where we used a special toolkit to evaluate these claims. That toolkit is called scientific skepticism. In this episode, we're going to talk about the methodology, purpose, and implications of skepticism with Dr. Stephen Novella. I hope at the end you'll be interested enough to take a look at the show notes at monstertalk.org where we're going to have a lot of useful links to materials to help you learn more about the world. If you're the type of person who loves to forward emails without ever asking, is this true? I hope you'll have a listen. In fact, I hope you'll forward this episode to your friends because that kind of thing makes you feel good and this time you'll be spreading something that might change their life without activating their spam filters. This is Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Well, today, it's the monster show about science. I'm Blake Smith. Together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, we're going to talk to Dr. Stephen Novella about Skepticism 101. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog.
Hey. Hello. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. <laughs> Thank you. I've always wanted to be on this show. <laughs> How's it going? Uh, good. So you want to do a little intro now? or you Yeah, wanted let's to... do a little intro. Let's do a little intro. Okay. Um, uh, you want to start talking about so, well, Steve? Well, I was or... just going to say the, um, uh, we're about to talk to Dr. Stephen Novella about Skepticism again? 101. Yeah, this would be great. Again, yes, this would be his well, third talking appearance. Talking with him again, not the same topic. Right, no, it's a different topic. He's he's he knows three different topics, and this will be the third one, and it's going to be great. So. Well, he's always welcome on the show. He's always no, he's, got something to say. He's a great guest. But so that will be a novella on the show. But I wanted to take a moment to also talk about a novel. Oh. <laughs> I'm glad that I gave you the opportunity to make that pun. Yes, that's what I'm so, here for. But. And there's a, there's a pun in the title of my novel as well. Oh, really? Uh, so hit, well, well, then I'm for it. <laughs> hits and misses. So a pun after your own heart. So, um, so, so what is hits and misses and how do you spell it? Well, that's the thing. That's the, the key there. The, the spelling is M-R-S for misses, so not M-I-S-S-E-S. But it's a novel, my first novel, and it's just been released. And it is about a charismatic psychic medium and a skeptic who's just having a hell of a time trying to expose this guy. And uh, obviously, like the title suggests, I do talk about how we tend to pay attention to the hits and uh, ignore the misses. And that's something that we treat a lot in skepticism. Um, so in this book, it's how we pay attention to the hits and uh, ignore the misses in, in love and in life. Um, and it's uh, I, I weave in a lot of skeptical concepts like cold reading and hot reading and the, the four effect. And I'm thinking it might be one of the first skeptical novels out there. I'm not cool. sure if there's anything else that's been written like this, but all the characters in the book are fictional except for one. And that's the mentalist Banachek. So he, uh, Oh, he a real person in... makes an appearance. Yes. Yes. Well, more than an appearance, not just a cameo. He's throughout the book. He is, um, the person who's advising and guiding the skeptic and trying to give her advice on, on what to do, how to expose and bust this psychic. Uh, so he's given me a little review if I can just read that out, but can sure. I swear? Can you swear? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, you can always just blot it out. Let me hear what the, what's the swear word? <laughs> well, the, the F word, the F word, and we've had plenty of that with Kenny in the past, haven't That's we? That's true. So I'll be, I'll, I'll beep an F word, but you'll, it'll be funny. You'll bleep it out. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, coming from me too, because I otherwise sounds so posh, right? Right, right. So <laughs> this will be a very intellectual F. <laughs> yes, indeed. So this, this is from Banachek. He read the book for me after I'd written it, and um, he says that it's a f***ing brilliant and riveting look into the journey of deception and how we psychologically accept deceit. It's a story that will keep you on the edge of your seat, yet educate you in the process. I want more, and so will you. So, so you wrote that in the book? Um, uh, <laughs> he said that. He said that. No, wait, but you just said he was a character. So you. <laughs> he well, well, it's based on, as I said, all the, the characters are fictional except for him, and so I do look at a couple of things that he was involved in. For example, the the Peter Popov expose. Oh yeah, no, I'm just. Um, kidding but, there, but I kind of it's a reimagining of that, and uh, also the Project Alpha. So you know, there, there's some truth in there for the the things that he's done for his background. Neat. Um, but he, he's just a character in the book. Besides our show notes, where can someone find this book? Okay, well, you can find it uh, through Amazon. If you go there, you can get a Kindle edition. You can find it for paperback and also for iBooks and Nook and um, Smashwords. That's becoming very popular now. You can get it in different formats through Smashwords. I keep going to say Smash Mouth or Smash Burger, but Smash Words. All right. Well, <laughs> that sounds great. I will put a link to that in the show notes. And congratulations on actually finishing a book. I wish I could do that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, you will. You will. It's... You've got a lot of things on your plate right now. Well, let's go talk to Steve Novella. Sounds good. Monster Talk. Dr. Okay. Steven Novella is a clinical neurologist and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine. He's a prominent figure in the skeptic community. He's the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He's actively involved in the promotion of science-based medicine. He's delivered two classes for the great courses, Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills, and... Medical Myths, Lies, and Half-Truths, What We Think We Know May Be Hurting Us. 
We'll put a link to those in our show notes, as well as information about the upcoming Northeastern Conference on Science and Skepticism, a.k.a. Nexus, which is being held in May of this year in New York City. This marks Dr. Novella's third appearance on Monster Talk. You can find them in our archives in Episode 13 on Ghosts and Episode 72 on Ed and Lorraine Warren. Welcome back, Dr. Novella. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. We're calling this episode Skepticism 101 because I'd like to devote an episode to just explaining skepticism a little bit and kind of kicking down some of the straw man characterizations of self-described skeptics that you find on the Internet. Sure. I'm sure we'll touch upon monsters, too. We may talk about (laughs) monsters. It could happen. (laughs) So you want me to start with just a definition of what skepticism is? Do you have a copy of our questions? This is weird. He's psychic. Come on. (laughs) Yes. Number one, what is skepticism? (laughs) Oh, sure. So sometimes we use the term scientific skepticism to distinguish it from other interpretations because, you know, there's philosophical skepticism and also the brand is being hijacked by like climate change deniers call themselves skeptics, but they're actually on the opposite end of that, um, of that question from what the skeptical position is. So what we mean by that is essentially an approach to any claims to facts or knowledge that is based in logic and evidence, empiricism. Uh, So that includes a lot of things. It includes sort of understanding the philosophy of science, understanding how science works, the difference between science and pseudoscience, and what I like to call neuropsychological humility, which is basically understanding all the ways in which we can be deceived and even more importantly, that we deceive ourselves. So essentially, it's an, an, a formalized attempt at trying to arrive at conclusions which are the most likely to reflect reality. And so how did you become involved in skepticism or how did you discover skepticism? Well, you know, I've always had a, a, an intense interest in science going back to as young as I could remember. And around, you know, high school, I started to realize that not everything that was claiming to be scientific was actually scientific. And there were actually some anti-scientific beliefs out there. Creationism was probably the first one I really, really locked horns with. Uh, and then through through Carl Sagan, Stephen Jay Gould, and then eventually the Skeptical Inquirer, started to realize that, yeah, there's, there's this other discipline here within science that is essentially about telling the, the difference between science and pseudoscience. And I basically never looked back. How do you describe the difference between methodological skepticism versus just kind of casual naysaying that you find out in the real world? Yeah, so there's, there are things which can superficially seem like skepticism, such as cynicism, or just being a naysayer, or uh, what I might call a contrarian, like just not believing whatever the mainstream says, or not believing authority just for the sake of not believing authority. Uh, so that's not what what scientific skeptics do. They sometimes authority is correct, sometimes it's not correct. You know, you you follow the evidence, you follow logic. You you don't be different just to be different, and you don't naysay things just to take a contrary opinion. You try to have your opinions be, again, as close as reality as you could possibly make them. I have a question written down here that says, why do we need skepticism? But I, I want to expound on that a little bit. I I have this suspicion, based on uh, my experiences in life, that maybe people don't have a very good natural way of discerning what's real and what's not real, what's true and what's not true. And I think maybe as a neurologist and a skeptic, you might have a little more insight into that. But, but why do we need uh, this formal methodology of skepticism? Yeah, I mean, that is a great question. I, I do get that a lot from many different directions, sometimes from scientists who are like, well, isn't this just all science? You know, why do we need – what is skepticism? How is it different than just being scientific? Well, uh, on that score – even highly trained academics and scientists frequently get fooled or snookered by pseudoscience because understanding science is not the same thing as understanding pseudoscience, but they often naively think that it is. Uh, so one is that there, there is a set of, of disciplines, of, of knowledge, of skills that go along with understanding all the ways in which we fool ourselves and all the ways in which uh, people pretend to be doing science when, in fact, they're not quite doing science or sometimes they're very much not doing science. And in my experience, you know, academics and scientists don't automatically understand that and they could get into serious trouble uh, if they don't have some also understanding of skepticism. Uh, but also I think um, 
psychologists have pretty clearly established that human beings have a massive tendency to believe stuff. Uh, we have a huge bias to defend things that we already believe. Uh, we have many, many cognitive biases. And if you're not aware of those biases, you will, if you're just sort of following what it comes natural to you, you'll tend to believe things just because you heard them, just because it's the first thing that you he you heard, or because it fits some kind of psychological or emotional need, need to feel like you're in control, that things are not that complicated, or that are in line with your ego. Uh, we're, we're sort of built to believe stuff that makes us feel good, not stuff that's true. And so you have to consciously transcend that. You have to be aware of these biases and work against them very vigilantly. It takes a lot of work and it's really a lifelong project. You're never there. You're never free of biases, but you're just trying to constantly keep them at bay and minimize them. And uh, so if you were talking about scientists and academics having difficulty in being skeptical all of the time, um, then how can the average person, lay people out there, how can they become more skeptical if it's difficult for, for people who should theoretically be skeptical like scientists and academics? Yeah, there's no shortcut. You know, it's, it's really hard. I'm not going to pretend like it's easier. There's some really quick formula. I think, first of all, it's just like anything, you need to be aware that there's a problem before you can do anything about it. So I think right. the humility comes first, right? Mm -hmm. I think there also needs to be a desire to believe things or to accept things which are actually true. There needs to be a certain basic respect for the truth. Not everybody has that. We kind of take that for granted because I think, you know, all skeptics, yeah, of course you want to believe stuff that's true and not believe stuff that isn't true. But I've, I've encountered people, it's like, hey, the truth is not that important to me. What's important is that, you know, I'm happy in my life or fulfilled or spiritual or whatever. Mm -hmm. Who cares what's actually true? So the skeptics obviously do care what's actually true. Um, so that's part of it. We also, you know, you need to be humble. Science is hard. It's complicated. Logic is hard and complicated. Our brains have a lot of strengths, but a lot of weaknesses. And we have to have some kind of at least recognition that that's the case. Once you're, once you acknowledge all those things, then you're on your way. The rest is a process, right? And then again, that's a process that will never end. You'll never arrive. It's just, you're, you're, you're trying to go through some kind of process to evaluate what you think. Uh, it's, and it starts with simple questioning, you know, just saying, oh, okay, I'm reading this on the internet and it's right in line with my political beliefs. I really want to accept this at face value, but I know that, you know, not everything you read on the internet is true. So let me check it out. Let me see if I could find out if it's not true and then try to disprove the thing that you want to accept or whatever you believe. And now then you're on your way, you know, uh, but there's lots of resources out there. Um, the, the more you time and energy you want to dedicate to becoming a better skeptic, to a better thinker, a better critical thinker, there's tons of resources out there. But it's a there's a it's pretty deep. There's a lot. It's a long journey. So don't don't feel daunted. Just feel like hey, every little bit of extra knowledge you learn about it, the better critical thinker you are. You know that you one more step along the way. I think for myself, this has been a, a really big change in my life uh, that has been sort of wrought by being involved in skepticism. I, I think my original introduction to it in some ways had to do with finding people who were wrong on the Internet. And, uh, you know, sure. and, and it, it was plenty fun. of them. Well, it was fun to argue and to like try to. Well, that doesn't sound right. Uh, you know, and let me argue with them on the internet. But ultimately, <laughs> it's actually changed my life to the point that I don't argue with people very much uh, because I find that I spend less time being so sure of myself. So I might find myself instead saying, how do you know that's true? Or have you looked into that yourself and trying to encourage them to you know, do a little investigation? Because yeah. it seems like the trends of things like Facebook are that you develop a, a network of friends and then they share things that you agree with, and then you, you or the things that create outrage. So you're either liking or, or being outraged by things all the time. <laughs> and and so it's we all agree we don't like this, and we all agree we do like this. Um, it doesn't really seem to foster much uh, deep introspection or, or, or skeptical thinking. Yeah, ironically, a lot of people have pointed this out. Ironically, while the internet gives us access to a lot of information, I do think it's making people smarter as a net effect. But 
there is also the echo chamber effect. It's very easy to cocoon yourself in an echo chamber of opinions that resonate with what you already believe. And you have to kind of go out of your way to challenge yourself. I actually, I understand what you're saying when you mean you don't quote unquote argue with people. I think what you really mean is that you don't fight with people. Argument though, the, the term ah, yes. can also mean to just engage in a discussion about what's likely to be true to examine premises and logic. And so when I argue with people and I wrote, you know, an article, how to argue and what I, what I say is that don't try to prove you're right. And the other person is wrong. Try to, First of all, examine your own premises, your own logic. Try to find common ground and see if you can build on – once you identify what the common ground is, see if you could build from there. And that's that's a really constructive way to approach it because then you, you learn something. If you have a fact in your head that's wrong or if you're committing a, a logical fallacy and somebody could point that out to you, you've learned something. Uh, you may be able to teach the other person something and maybe you might be able to arrive at an agreement or at least understand that, okay, we are coming from different premises that we can't prove right now or we're making different subjective or value judgments and that's, that's not resolvable. So we'll just, you know, agree that that's a difference in our value system or whatever, but you won't just be locking horns saying, I'm right. I have these facts and you, and the other person thinks that they're right with their set of facts and it's completely unresolvable until you take a deep breath and, step back and try to examine everyone's, you know, facts and logic. I think I probably should have said I don't like to bicker on the internet as much. Yeah. <laughs> I think discussion's a good term for that because I think argument, so too. You know, yeah. A lot of people will, will shut down and uh, it just becomes very emotional and, and personal and, um, yeah, they won't listen anymore. Right. Yeah. That's hard. It's hard not to trigger people's emotions. You got to really be careful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, Steve, most of the methodologies of skepticism can be applied to ideas by individuals, but it seems like skepticism is slowly creeping into the judicial system. Could you possibly discuss this and some of the other kinds of useful institutional skepticism maybe that we might find in uh, the medical industries or in uh, corporate yeah, sure. I mean, I think any institution needs to have skepticism. Uh, you know, if there, especially if there's any um, investigative profession, if you're doing anything where your job is to figure stuff out, to investigate, mm -hmm. that is rife with pitfalls, like police, for example, certainly physicians, anyone making a diagnosis, uh, anyone involved in the legal system. Um, you you have to have a process. That process is essentially skepticism. It's how do we know it's really, really true? Uh, so, and you know, institutions like that, that it, where that's essentially what they do over time have developed a sort of practical bag of critical thinking, you know, tools and tricks that they, that they rely upon. But it's, I find it very helpful to sort of break that down to fundamental sort of skeptical philosophy. It's like, ah, you see, like physicians have a lot of sayings that are just practical knowledge from experience. You know, it's like, don't jump on the obscure diagnosis, even if, even if it sounds really, really good, because, you know, rare things are rare. You're not going to see them. Sounds very, you know, commonsensical, but that's a very common mistake that everyone makes when they first start to think about like what a diagnosis could be. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's fun to be able to say, yeah, that's the difference between the representativeness heuristic or the availability heuristic and taking an analytical approach of considering the base rate of something and the predictive value of the information you have. Being able to sort of strip it down, it's like that's actually the, you know, how like, psychologists would describe that thought process and where it goes wrong. You're latching on to something because it it's, it's, looks typical, but that is not that predictive. You really also need to know what the probability is. If that disease is one in a million, I don't care how typical it looks, you're still probably not dealing with that disease. It's actually more likely that you're dealing with an atypical presentation of a really dirt common disease uh, just by playing the odds. So, but that's not how our minds work. Our minds latch on to the pattern, you know, the pattern recognition rather than the statistics. We're much better at pattern recognition than we are at math, but that doesn't get you to the right answer all the time. It often gets you to the false answer. And so that's sort of training yourself to think analytically and mathematically, statistically, and not just go along with your pattern recognition. These are hardcore skeptical lessons that apply to anything. 
Uh, and you, it's also where I like sort of being a full service skeptic, as I say, not focusing on just one area because I could see the similarities between like the kind of investigations that police officers do or the kind of evidence as presented in the courtroom, the kind of diagnosis that physicians do. And then UFO hunters, you know, something completely unrelated, you would think, but it's they're committing the same sort of mental errors that a diagnostic error would make. Uh, so it's, yeah, so we, we all have the same human brains. We're committing the same logical fallacies over and over and over again, just in different contexts. Uh, and that applies, you know, I think to every and pretty much every institution. I think an important thing to learn is uh, that your brain lies to you a lot. You oh, te- yeah. <laughs> you teach this course on skepticism called Your Deceptive Mind via the great courses. And in that course, you talk a lot about how easily our brains are tricked. Uh, can you give us a few examples, some simple examples that would demonstrate to everyone that trusting your brain is not always the safe bet? Well, the most obvious example uh, are optical illusions. Uh, and people are, you know, they like optical illusions because they sort of confront you with the fact that your brain is constructing an image of what you think you see. And then it could be easily demonstrated to you immediately that it's wrong. You were fooled, you know, that whatever you were looking at is is not what you thought you were looking at. Uh, or you could make like the lines look askew when they're parallel or start to wiggle when they're not wiggling or whatever or make the shades look different, but in fact, you could demonstrate that they're exactly the same. And we're like, oh, wow, that is so cool. It's cool. It freaks us out because we tend, you know, day to day, we live our lives with this illusion that um, we are experiencing reality as it is, when in fact, our brains are constructing an an internal model of rea- of reality. And that construction makes a lot of assumptions uh, it selects what information it's going to use. It ignores the rest. So it's highly selective, highly filtered, uh, based on a lot of assumptions. Assumptions that work most of the time, but they're not strictly true. And that's and so that 1% of the time when they're not true is when you constrict, your brain constructs things wrong. Um, and then you think you see something that is just not not reality. So our our brains fool us when it can when it constructs things in an inaccurate way, a way that does not accurately reflect uh, reality. And it's not just vision; that's just the most obvious example. But the same is true in what you think you hear, also what you remember. Uh, you're when you remember something, you're not playing a tape recorder; you're reconstructing the memory, uh, and your brain really favors internal consistency over accuracy. So it will alter everything. It'll alter what it thinks it sees. You know, it'll alter the sensation. It'll alter the memory. So it all sort of jibes together. Even if it has to completely change the details, doesn't matter if they're accurate or not. So our brains sometimes almost deliberately fool us just so that there's no internal conflict. Uh, So even to the point of just totally overwriting memories, merging memories, altering details, inventing memories, inventing experiences you've never had just to try to make sense of things, make the pieces fit together. Yeah, I think um, there's some great videos out there by Richard Wiseman that kind of demonstrate some of those effects, and I'll uh, put a link to those in the show notes. That's sort <laughs> of the uh, the classic, is just the uh, inattentional blindness, how you could not see something that's right in front of your face because your brain's, your your attention is being directed elsewhere. Uh, again, just it, it's interesting how little we can perceive or how easy you know it is to deceive. And of course, magicians have learned to do this over centuries, again, sort of as a practical uh, skill set for their profession. You know, they've learned how easy it is to, dis- to distract people to the point where you could manipulate things right in front of their face and they won't perceive it. So, Steve, you've been talking about formal skepticism. And of course, there's a lot of informal skepticism out there too uh, with our movement and our community, even though some would say, oh, there's no skepticism movement. I mean, there there is. Um, so my question is, how can we spread skepticism outside of our own movement? How can we get the average person interested in skepticism? Yeah, that's a, it's obviously a great question. It's what we're always trying to do. You know, we're trying to use social media uh, to make people enthusiastic about science, and science is a great uh, avenue into skepticism. 
uh, because then it meets, leads immediately to the question of, well, how do we know what we know? But why are scientists saying this? Uh, so that's one way using social media. Obviously, you know, we, we have podcasts, you know, Facebook pages, Twitter feeds, all of that sort of stuff. And that's been, that's been great. I think we've tremendously grown the movement, you know, mm-hmm. through, through all of those venues compared to 20 years ago. You know, our movement is, you know, orders of magnitude, I think, bigger than it was. Uh, but then, I, you know, we're also trying to break into the mainstream, you know, uh, outside of, uh, venues that are identified as skeptical, but that's tricky. It's hard, I think, because uh, the word has a lot of baggage. There really isn't a good word for what we do that doesn't have baggage. Um, and you know, there there is uh, a culture of belief, and sometimes an anti-intellectual culture that we're fighting against. Yep. You know, we've all every skeptic who's tried to break into the mainstream have had the experience of running up against the senior producer or whatever or editors like okay yeah we could do this show but then we have to leave it mysterious at the end like maybe there are ghosts like no that's kind of misses the whole point so i think we're learning sort of how to package what we do in a way that can get into more mainstream venues and i think that it's i think most people are very interested in it because it's empowering you know if you it's like letting people in on a secret everyone wants to know what the secret is right Mm -hmm. everyone wants to think they know how the magician does the trick uh, so even though you know, people say, oh, you suspend your disbelief, it's not true. Everyone wants to know how the trick is done, right? Everyone goes to a magic show and tries to figure out how the tricks are done. So I think there's an inherent sort of curiosity. Nobody wants to be on the side that's being fooled. They want to be on the side that knows how the trick is being done. And that's what skepticism is. And occasionally we're able to, to, to package it in that way and get out to a mainstream audience. But I think we're still sort of fighting uphill. Definitely. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. It seems like, you know... Just any community uh, has the sort of problems that the skeptic community has, you know, with uh, divisions and sort of schisms and personalities who have, you know, their own little quirks. And I kind of wonder sometimes because uh, and I don't want to get all inside baseball because a lot of our listeners are not part of or don't self-identify as skeptics necessarily. But is you know, what, would skepticism have any special qualities that would make it immune to those things? I don't think so. I, I no. mean, it seems like that, that what some have identified as problems in the community are just problems with being human. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think any sense that I might have had in the past that maybe skeptics would be different has been utterly destroyed by <laughs> recent events. <laughs> that the fact that people are people, you know, we we have emotions, we have ideologies, we have belief systems. Uh, know, we have, it, it, I think it's, even being aware of biases apparently is yeah. not. It doesn't protect you from bias. <laughs> it, it. I mean, it helps. It, it helps. does I do help. Think, yeah. I do think we are very introspective as a movement, which is great. And I also do think that. The, the majority of people in the community or who self-identify as skeptics are very reasonable people that you can, you know, have a conversation with and they can sort of understand the complexity of issues and et cetera. But there's also, there are extremes in every possible way within the movement. You know, people are self-identified skeptics or skeptics in a lot of ways, but still have their, their sacred cow or their ideology or their narrative or their approach to things. And, uh, it's hard to completely, completely break out of that. And we're still emotional. It's not like we don't care about things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that we have to care more about being right, by, by uh, care more about following a valid process than about what the, the outcome of that process, what the conclusion what of other, it is. Or what other skeptics are working on or what they find important to fight for. Yeah, I don't know why that becomes yeah. an issue, but like we, 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 like you like alternative medicine. I mean, that's the thing yeah. you're very interested in, and it's an incredibly important topic because people's lives are on the line. But, mm -hmm. but some people dismiss areas of skepticism that aren't, you know, that sort of uh, general health focused, uh, like Bigfoot skepticism, UFO skepticism, paranormal skepticism. Do you think those other areas of skepticism are important? Absolutely. I mean, I, th I think that the most ridiculous infighting that's gone on, gone on within our movement is fighting over what people should be focusing their attention on. How about this? Whatever the hell they want to. You know, just, <laughs> if you want to spend your life researching belief in Bigfoot, go right ahead, you know, and tell me what you find because it's interesting. Uh, but don't tell me I have to do that. Right. Or yeah. don't tell me that's the only tr one true skepticism or whatever. Obviously, there are some big divisions like, you know, to what extent should we apply our activism to mainstream religious beliefs, uh, yeah. for example, or to political beliefs uh, or to social beliefs? You know, to what extent should we be advocating for certain social values alongside of our skepticism? It's like, you know what? You could package it any way you want. Good luck to you. Do whatever it is you want to do. But really, that we shouldn't. I don't. I don't think that there's, uh, you know, people should be trying to dictate to others what they should be doing or what proper skepticism is. And if a bunch of people who want to do it the same way band together and have a conference, good for them. Don't tell them what they should do with their conference. They could sort of define the editorial policy any way that they want. And it, it, you know, we did have that honeymoon period. I think when. <laughs> Social media really expanded the movement very quickly where we focused more on our similarities. But then what inevitably happens, again, this is we're humans, is that we start to focus on our differences and that starts to then fissures start to form within the movement, you know. Yeah. And sometimes you could be people seem to get the most emotional about the group that's just a little bit different than theirs. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I think that's it's actually a – a strength of skepticism that there are so many different areas and topics and people focusing on different yeah. things. I think having that interdependence is an important thing uh, in lots of areas outside of skepticism and certainly within skepticism too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have humanists, atheists, atheism plus, you know, as well as the hardcore skeptics, the scientific skeptics, whatever. It's all good. It's all good. We're all sort of working on the same problem, right? Trying to make the world a more rational place. And we have subspecialties and just different personalities and talents and inclinations. Should you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't criticize each other. That's that's all fair game too. Oh, yeah, should yeah. Be, should be working to, together because let's face it, our our similarities overwhelm our differences. I just hope people don't forget that. You know, the the difference between us on the side of the equation where we care about the truth, we care about process, about reason, about validity, uh, is dramatically different from the people who are selling very different narratives, are either con artists or they're trying to push, push spiritualism or they're anti-intellectual or whatever. The, 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 the difference between all of us and the, the kind of forces of irrationality that we're fighting is so much greater than our internal differences, but I think people need to be reminded of that every now and then. Yeah, good points. And uh, you've been talking about bias and blind spots 
can you give us a rundown of what bias is and can you tell us a, uh, about a few of the kinds of biases that people commonly fall prey to? Sure. I mean, bias is just a, w- a way our minds tend to work that is not strictly following logic or evidence, but you know, like the thumb is on the scale towards one type of conclusion. So for example, probably one of the most fundamental biases is confirmation bias. We have a tendency to seek out to and to uncritically accept information which supports our pre-existing narratives, our pre-existing beliefs. We have a tendency to either ignore or more likely actually explain away pieces of information that disagree with our pre-existing narrative. This can be a powerful, powerful perceptual bias in that we will notice and remember the information which supports what we believe. And then we end up thinking there's so much evidence for what we believe. How could anybody think anything differently? Uh, you know, all of my life experience, you know, supports this belief that in whatever it is, but it be, you know, Confirmation bias works in a systematic way to gather that supportive information and to shield you from information which would disconfirm your belief. So two people could be looking at the same set of data and come away with two diametrically opposed conclusions because they're applying different confirmation bias filters. Mm -hmm. That's the most fundamental one. That's what it runs through everything that we do. And you have to always step back. You have to appreciate the power of confirmation bias and realize that unless you've looked at something objectively and systematically, you really don't know. You really don't know what the answer is, what the information is, that your, you know, your brain is just handing you a completely biased subset of information. That's one of my fears about social media is because of what we are talking about before, that it can effectively become a giant confirmation bias engine that just oh, yeah. feeds itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I try to... I don't, I'm not saying this is the best thing in the world, but I, I try to uh, read and follow what people I disagree with say. Um, so, and sometimes I retweet things people I disagree with say, and I, I think that confuses people who want to have sort of this purity system <laughs> online that you need to be methodologically and ideologically, you know, in line with what they agree with. But I, I do find that. Uh, that it is something that's almost inescapable. Oh, I guess it is inescapable. It's like there's probably an evolutionary basis. It seems like in some sense your mind wants to tell you, or it's less pained by being told you are, are correct. Yeah, you know, there's, you know, the uh, psychological theory of um, cognitive dissonance, where if, if our brain tries to hold two conflicting beliefs at the same time, it actually causes emotional pain, psychological pain to us. And then we seek to relieve it. And we relieve it by rationalization, uh, by uh, figuring out some way to make the two things fit together or to dismiss one of them, to say, well, this one, I'm just going to toss this one out as not being true and find some reason to say that it's not true. In fact, neuroscientists have seen what happens in the brain during this process and it's very interesting it's like the belief part of your brain is fighting with the rational part of your brain causing uh, negative emotions and then you rationalize away the, the conflict and then you literally get a dose of dopamine your brain gives you a little reward and you feel good because you resolve the cognitive dissonance so that seems to be a fundamental way that our brains work we use most of our thinking power uh, to actually rationalize away facts so that we can maintain our beliefs. And we're actually really, really good at it. We're, we're very, and the smart, interestingly, smarter people can be better at that sort of rationalization. And so they could be more stuck in, into, in incorrect beliefs. Like, again, you think about the uh, parents who are vaccine deniers, and there's really no amount of evidence that can uh, move them from their conclusion that vaccines are unsafe and ineffective. Uh, facts won't do it. Logic won't do it. Why is that? It's like, well, they're sort of stuck in that belief system and they're really good at rationalizing away any piece of evidence you give them. Show them a study. That study was funded by the pharmaceutical industry. You make a rock solid argument, you're a shill, you know, or whatever. Um, so it's something that you need to keep reaffirming then? Yeah, so they, they definitely – then there's a cultural aspect to it. I think there's a community social aspect to it where it becomes part of your social group identity. Mm-hmm. And then once that sinks in, oh, it's really hard. Then you have so much motivation to reinforce the group identity and accepting an argument 
even as solid and fact-based as it is, actually becomes a betrayal of your community. Hmm. Uh, so that's really, really important not to allow yourself to get stuck into that. Of course, we all are to some degree, but you have to like really, really work against that. So that's why I think identifying as a skeptic is kind of important because that is your psychologically, it's almost necessary in, in order to, to accept beliefs, which would otherwise cause cognitive dissonance, but they're true. You have to be more dedicated to the process. You have to be more dedicated to your identity as a rational person, as a skeptic to say, okay, my identity as a rational person means I have to be able to change my mind in the face of new evidence. Um, so I have to follow this rational process. So we're kind of using our biases and using human psychology as a, as a positive thing, you know, to, we're trying to exploit it to make us more rational and reasonable rather than, you know, again, follow the pathway of least resistance where it, it just locks us into random belief systems, whatever happened to come our way, whatever we were raised in, whatever, you know, social group we end up identifying with or whatever. Uh, so I think that's very, very helpful. I find that very helpful. You know, it's like when I have to admit I'm wrong, it's like, well, but my identity as a skeptic requires that I admit I'm wrong. And that, it helps you do it, you know, so it's, it's actually very, very psychologically helpful. So we wanted to touch upon logical fallacies, and I know that it's something you discuss on your show a lot. It's a very important part of skepticism, um, yet they sometimes seem to shut down discussion. So I'm just wondering if you've given much thought to the ways that skeptics can use these socially without coming across as seeming arrogant or dismissive. Yeah, yeah, the, the whole logical fallacy thing is very interesting. So first of all, we're talking about informal logical fallacies, which are just, uh, you know, errors in thinking, you know, logic that's not quite valid, uh, things that are not necessarily true. Um, like the argument from authority is a great one. It's like if you say, well, this is true because, you know, I know this scientist who said it's true. It's like, well, that's, you know, you're not giving me evidence. You're just giving me one person's authority. That's not really a valid argument. Uh and understanding the various logical fallacies can be very powerful. But what I try to reinforce to people, though, is that there, you really should use your understanding of the various logical fallacies as a way to police your own thinking, to make sure that your own thinking is as valid as possible. It is also helpful to be able to analyze and deconstruct other people's arguments. But don't just use it as a weapon and I think that's the that's the the pitfall. I think a, a lot of people start to use logical fallacies as a weapon, mm -hmm. and essentially they commit the logical fallacy fallacy. Right? They think <laughs> if I can frame what the other person is saying in such a way as to make it sort of fit into one of these logical fallacies, then I win. Right? I could say, Ah, you're committing an argument from authority. Therefore, you're wrong and I'm right, uh, which is not not logically true. That is a fallacy in and of itself. But it also shows you how clever we are, right? So if I say, well, the overwhelming consensus of scientific opinion is that, you know, humans are causing global warming. Someone could say, well, that's an argument from authority. You're wrong. That's a logical fallacy. Well, no, it actually isn't. Um, I'm, you know, stating an overwhelming consensus of scientific opinion based upon evidence, based upon studies and expertise and that's not just an argument from authority. It's, it's just a way of understanding what the evidence is saying. Uh, but you can frame it as a logical fallacy. And so I, I see a lot of people, it's kind of like the sophomoric way of approaching it, right? It's like, oh, I have some basic understanding of logical fallacies. Now I can use these as tools and weapons to win arguments on the internet. And I'll just <laughs> play various logical fallacy cards, you know, left and right. And, and I'm the smart one and I win. But that's really, really a counterproductive way to think about them. It's it's so really tools for understanding your own thinking. Armin said the building's on fire. Yeah, argument from authority. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'll stay and burn. <laughs> so how does uh, skepticism mesh with neurology? Are, are there any neurological changes that occur in the mind of skeptics as compared to believers? Or have you looked into that at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't personally do research in this, so when I looked into it, meaning I've read what other people have studied and published, sure. and yeah, there's there's definitely some overlap. So there's interesting studies, for example, looking at what happens inside the brain when we're listening to a charismatic speaker, and what and fMRIs, which are tricky to interpret. So I don't, you know, you always got to be skeptical of fMRI research, but. Um, what some studies have shown is that if you look at what's happening in the brains, 
of people who are listening to a charismatic speaker who agrees with their worldview, that's critical, that their frontal lobes, the parts of the brain that are most involved with critical thinking, actually have decreased activity. Whereas if we're listening to a charismatic speaker from an opposing worldview, we don't have that reaction. So when we talk about a charismatic speaker sort of hypnotizing a crowd, it's actually literally true. The same kinds of things happen. It, they're actually turning off the critical thinking parts of the brain, uh, which gives the belief part of the brain, right, I guess, more free reign. And apparently that's adaptive because we descended from people whose brains behave that way. I guess that you could argue this is sort of hand-waving, but you could argue that that's somehow helpful for social cohesion. Uh, or I guess you could argue it's, it's that kind of thing is necessary if we're going to follow a charismatic leader into battle and get killed. You've got to really believe in what you're doing. So you could see how the tribes that sort of behave that way were more cohesive and maybe more fearless in combat – you know, a tribe of skeptics probably would be slaughtered because we would you know, have a hard time following, you know, following one leader into, into combat. So I, I guess all the skeptical tribes died out in the past. But, um, yeah, that's something. We could see it happening in the brain. You could see the critical thinking well, parts of the brain turn off. I would have to say just even as a, a skeptic, um, you're talking about groups of people who agree with these charismatic characters. Over the years, just in my – the things I've done in skepticism, I've seen so many of these popular charismatic people like Sylvia Brown and Bob Larson. Uh, I've seen their performances firsthand. And even as a skeptic, often they can be very impressive. Um, you can see how manipulative – these people are, um, but you can just, they still come across as very impressive in the way that they handle people and the way that they um, uh, deal with hecklers or, or just deal with logic um, to, to fight it. And it, you can still just see what attracts people to them, even though you're not attracted to it yourself. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I've had the same experience. They could, they could be very impressive. But I've I've also seen people who were not so impressive. And what's interesting is that like the Sylvia Browns, although it's hard for me to imagine that she was charismatic, but anyway, she <laughs> you know, the 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 we're looking at the very top of the pyramid, right? Mm -hmm. Uh look at the cream of the crop. These are the people who are real these are the superstars of of that of that uh, thing of, of being a charismatic true believer, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you, I've also encountered local people who were like in the second tier or the third tier, you know, like they weren't national figures. They were just sort of local people doing the same sort of things, whether they were psychics or mediums or whatever. And it's funny. It's really, it's like watching American Idol, right? It's fun right. to watch the people who are not polished professionals. Yeah. It's like, yeah, they're just not that impressive. And, they make lots of mistakes and they have lots of holes in their performance and you can kind of see how the sausage is made. It's like watching a terrible ma ma magician, right? They give away all the tricks because they're not doing a good job Yeah. Uh, and you don't really buy into the, to what they're, the act, you know, what they're doing. So that's – if you can get that experience, you know, see some local second-rate psychic or whatever, do it because you, yeah. you pick up so much more than when you're watching the really polished cream of the crop who are very, very good at what they're doing. And I think for um – Sorry. You, you go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, as regards Sylvia Brown, uh, she had a very wicked sense of humor when I saw her and uh, the, the way she was just appealing to her audience through humor and through her sense of being authoritative as well. Uh, if yeah. anyone questioned her, she would shoot them down. She was just very seasoned in, in the way that she did that. Yeah, there are different kinds of charisma. And I agree with you. Yep. The authoritativeness, authoritarian is one type. Uh, and even being sort of critical or cynical can have a certain type of charisma to it. Uh, and also, you know, psychics and magicians have, um, again, in addition to that sort of authority, this sort of mystical side to them. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're like attractive, good, nice people or friendly. No. It just mm -hmm. means that they're sort of mysterious and even in, in a way anti-charismatic, but that could still work for their sort of persona. For sure, yeah. We'll actually be talking about some of these things in upcoming episodes this season of Monster Talk, so I'm excited about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The um, um, We've covered uh, bias, uh, fallacies, brain limitations, sort of the methodology of skepticism. Is there anything else you think people need to get sort of started in skeptical thinking? Yeah, I mean, you could also uh, – there's the concept of heuristics, which I think I mentioned very briefly just to throw another word in, into your lexicon there. So a heuristic is a is a mental shortcut. And it's something that's true most of the time, but it's not strictly logically true. 
So like when I mentioned the availability heuristic, that is um, a, a bias in the way we think in which if, if we could readily think of an example of something, then we think that that thing is common and or true. It's like, oh, yeah, I know somebody who took that medicine and got better. Oh, it must be true. Plain because you, yeah. yeah, because you could think yeah. of somebody. It's like, oh, my grandmother lived to be 100 and she smoked. So I guess it you know, yeah. must not be that risky. So we, we tend to just think that our ability to think of examples is somehow telling, right? That that somehow is predictive of how likely something is to be true or how valid it is. But it actually is not. It's just quirky, whatever your quirky experience is or your memory. Again, then confirmation bias could play into that too. Well, of course you remember things that fit the narrative because that's how confirmation bias works. And then the availability heuristic reinforces it even further by saying because I've remembered this, it's true. It's not because of my confirmation bias. So they kind of all conspire together to reinforce the, the narrative. So these are kinds of stereotypes in a sense? Yeah, stereotypes are also very much prey to like heuristic thinking and also confirmation bias. I think prejudice feeds off confirmation bias, right? You think right. of examples of the that reinforce the stereotype and anything that disconfirms the stereotype, that's an exception, right? You find some <laughs> way that it's not an exception, it's data. The, the, uh, it's funny how many people say, oh, that's the exception. It's like, what, what's your criterion for what's an exception? It's just that it doesn't fit your narrative. That's it. It's like, right. no, it's actually data. It's not an exception. It's data. It's actually data that disconfirms your belief, your stereotype, your narrative, whatever. But it's amazing how even that little subtle way, the way our mind works, we, we think of it as a quote-unquote exception. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it doesn't contradict the rule, the rule being the <laughs> thing that we're, that we're – the narrative that we're trying to hold on to. Right. Very tricky. Yeah, so very tricky. We talked about arrogance a little bit and the sort of online argumentation – there is a sort of uh, maybe maybe this is not exact so maybe I should be careful how I word this the a sense among many people who self-identify as skeptics that they are intellectually superior to others it, it, is skepticism a functional methodology for people who don't self-identify as intellectuals everything you could imagine exists you know what I mean I think I see every permutation I think people use skepticism as a way to be pseudo-intellectual, you know, or there are lots of pseudo-skeptics who are really just cynical. And actually, a friend of mine, Joe Nickel, you, you, know, you, know, you guys know Joe. We know Joe. Oh, yes, but, yep. you made, yeah, he made a very astute observation to me once you know, that struck me. It's like cynicism is a cheap way to fake being skeptical, you know, or you just – all you have to do is be one notch more cynical than the other person. <laughs> you sort of position yourself as being the skeptic. No, it doesn't – skepticism doesn't work that way. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of potential there to use anything. You know, this is the ultimate deception is that you can't be deceived, right? That's the ultimate self-deception or the ultimate bias is the sense that you're free from bias. Uh, and that's, I think that's the, the big massive pitfall of being a self-identified skeptic is that you think at some point, oh, I'm now magically free from bias or flawed thinking or logical fallacies or you know, whatever, having an emotional investment. It's like, no, it's not true at all. It's all still there. You just have to be, you have to remain vigilant about it. The moment you think that you're not susceptible to those things, you become susceptible to them again. You know, mm -hmm. you sort of lose your skepticism, but that's, I, that's an easy one to fall for. You got to be very careful about that. Yeah, it's very difficult to be self-effacing. It is. It kind of goes against a lot of our of our ego, but that's why you have to you have to invest your ego in being following a valid process. I think mm -hmm. that's the only real pathway emotionally out of all of this is that you have to be dedicated to the process. Okay. Well, Steve, we've had you on the show a number of times already, but I don't believe that we've asked you that the question that we always like to ask ask our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster? That's yeah. That's a great question. Because I love monsters and lots of <laughs> science fiction, et cetera. So I I thought about it. First, I have to think like, what's your criteria for what is your quote unquote favorite monster? So I think that what's important is a monster that's really really scary. And I think what makes a monster, in my opinion, to me anyway, what makes a monster really scary is that um, when confronted by that monster, it's really hopeless. There's like nothing you can do. You've, you've, you're done for. So, uh, you know, a, a bestial, like feral kind of monsters, they're, yeah, they could, be, they could be ferocious, they could be scary, but they're just animals, so you can kind of outwit them. So it's not hopeless. 
uh, monsters like vampires that you can talk to, you know, you, at least you can convince yourself you have some way to reason with them. You might be able to reason your way out of being killed. Um, but the, the kinds of monsters that are scary are the ones that you can't reason with, you can't talk to, you can't outwit them. They're just relentless. They're overwhelming and relentless, and it's completely hopeless when, you, when you're confronted by them. Um, so a number of monsters kind of fall into that category. I'll give you my top two, okay? My number, in the number two position is uh, The Thing from you know, John yeah. Carpenter's movie. Yeah, the, <laughs> because it really was, it was – the moment they, they knew with it, that they were dealing with it, what they were dealing with, it was hopeless. They were all dead. Uh, but still, you could, you, there's a, maybe a little bit of a hope that they might have been able to – if they did everything the right way, they might have been able to defeat it. But it really was pretty hopeless. So what they should have done, honestly, was just call the superiors and say, drop some nuclear weapons on us right now. <laughs> Seriously. They, should, they, should, no, no, they I, were dead. I, they were dead. They just had to save the world. And the only way to really be sure is just to nuke the whole place. <laughs> but I have to give my number one slot to um, a, you know, a category of monsters. But I think the, my favorite uh, recent version of it was the aliens in War of the Worlds, especially the, the remake even though I could love the original version and there's some problems with the, with that uh, version of it, but the, the giant, you know, three legged uh, ships that they were walking around in and the, the sound that they made uh, was very terrifying. And again, they were, they were heartless. They were relentless. You couldn't bargain with them. We were insects. We were bugs. We were either in their way or we were food and that was it. And they were terraforming the planet. And, you know, the whole point of like, um, microbes on the earth killing them that's not really very plausible that we would probably not be saved by viruses or bacteria from an alien who would have too different a biology but um so in that scenario we are exterminated and we have zero chance of avoiding extermination and they're just going to hunt you down and destroy you relentlessly so that to me that's the scariest monster have you heard uh, jeff wayne's war of the worlds the musical no, I haven't heard that. Oh, it's really it's from the seventies. It's really good. Uh, you should check it out. And, oh, and uh, the thing is, one of my favorite movies. I actually yeah. I do a, a, a this event every year. I call it the thing thing, where I have a few friends over <laughs> during the winter, and we open the windows and make it as cold as possible, and sort of watch the movie in Arctic environments. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> fun way to watch the film. I mean, you don't have to be cold; you can bundle up. But it's just it's it's quite. It's like feelorama. It really, really makes the movie that yeah. much more sinister to be in the dark and cold. John Carpenter's The Thing is a fantastic movie. If you haven't watched it recently or at all, I recommend your, your listeners to watch it. It really holds up. I've watched it again recently. It's just so fantastic. You understand the characters within minutes of the beginning of the movie. And you're really investing. The writing is fantastic. There's lots of nuances to the writing that you can't get on the first viewing. Like if you really, really pay very close attention, there are clues throughout the movie as to like who the thing is and who is not the thing. It's really, really fascinating. Like the more you – I love it when movies always have like deeper layers than, than you've currently been able to penetrate. You know, it's fantastic. And it's, um, it's kind of a remake of the uh... – it's, well, it's really more like a true version of the original story than it is a remake of the thing from another world, which is also a yeah, great yeah. movie. But uh, the practical effects as well, I just want to throw that out there. Is it Rob Botton, I think, is the special mm -hmm. effects guy? Just they hold up so well, uh, even they on the Blu-ray. They look astonishing. They look really good and disgusting. And it's just it's just great. So. Well, I have to say, I think that's the most thoughtful response we've ever had to that question. Oh, it, it was great. good. It was very Thank good. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you. Very so, considered. So while you're here, uh, do you want to do anything to promote Nexus, your, the Skeptical Conference? Sure. Yeah, so Nexus this year is being held May 12th to 15th in New York City. Uh, we have workshops on Thursday, lots of fun, fun workshops. Uh, we have a whole day of science-based medicine on Friday, and then Saturday are, and Sunday are general science and skepticism. Richard Wiseman is our uh, keynote, and also oh. Bill Nye will be there. Uh, Bill Nye will also be joining us on Friday night for our skeptical extravaganza, which is kind of like a 
a vaudeville show for skepticism, <laughs> which we've been having a lot of fun with. And Bill joined us last year, and he loved it so much he actually asked to join us again this year. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so we have, we have a great lineup. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, definitely check it out. Yeah, nice. I still haven't been to Nexus. I have to get there one of these years. Yep, go to necss.org. You could uh, be, you know, book your tickets. And, yeah, Karen, got to get got to get you uh, over to Nexus sometime. Yeah, That'd we'll be great. put a link in the show notes, obviously. So. Cool. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Steve, for coming thank on. Thank you, again. Steve. Yeah. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. We love it. You do great work, and we really appreciate it. Well, yeah. thank you so much. All right. I will hang up on you now. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care, guys. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, we interviewed Dr. Stephen Novella about skepticism, and how to determine whether things are likely to be true or not. Skepticism is a complex topic, as you probably noticed. It's a skill that takes hard work and one which your brain tries to undermine with all its hardwired biases and faults. If you found this episode interesting, I hope you'll go to the show notes at monstertalk.org and take a look at some of the links there. The internet has a lot of great tools for helping you figure out what's real and what's not real, and knowing that can help you. Personally, I believe that skepticism can help make the world a better place. But it's a counterintuitive approach to the world. It's not something everyone would want to focus on. We'll get back to monster-focused episodes next time. And I hope you'll join us for that. Also, it would be really great if you could take a moment to give us a rating or a review on iTunes. We've got a lot of great new episodes coming out this year. And those ratings really encourage us to show up in the iTunes top podcast list, which in turn leads to new listeners. It only takes a moment, and I read them all. Monster Talks, an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views you heard on this show are those of the hosts, the guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you want to know their views, you're just going to have to subscribe to eSkeptic or perhaps their digital magazine on your digital reading device. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. And he's delivered two courses for the great courses, Your Deceptive Mind, a skeptic... See, I'm going to fix that right now. In fact, I'm going to go back a little bit. He's delivered two classes for the great courses, Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills, and Medical Myths, Lies, and Half-Truths, What We Think We May... What We Think We Know May Be Hurting Us. Have you thought about making those shorter? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't write the titles. That was all. That was their marketing department, I guess. No problem.